0: Thank you for tuning in to today's audio message. Here at Temple Baptist Church, we are a church on a mission, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our second 11 o'clock service. We're good to ha- it's good to have you here. I want to say, can we just say thank you to uh, Mario and Kendra for leading us? That's been really, really great having you here. For some of you, uh, they are new, and for others, they're like old friends. Um, So we're so thankful they were willing to come and lead us uh, this morning. If this is your first time with us, or maybe it's the first time in a long time, I just wanted to say we are absolutely delighted to have uh, you with us. And for all of our first-time people, I always like to let people know right off the bat, I like to put the cards right on the table and let you know what we're all about. We are a church on a mission. Um, We are uh, focused, laser-focused, on connecting people to Jesus and to one another. like We're absolutely convinced that the greatest relationship any man, woman, boy, or girl can have is a relationship with God through Jesus. And that drives us. And we also think that life is so much more fun. It's better when you get to do it together. So that's what we're all about, uh, connecting people to Jesus and to one another. And I also wanna give a shout out to those who are joining us online this morning from wherever you may be watching. We're glad to have you uh, with us this morning. Well, we're in this series called Every Day. Six weeks ago, we began this journey walking through the book of James. Uh, The half-brother of Jesus wrote a book that is filled with practical advice. And and James challenges us in this book uh, that our faith ought to make a difference in the way that we live our lives. It's a small little book. It's so easy to overlook if you didn't even know it was there, toward the end of your Bibles. But boy, it packs a wallop when you read the book. And James is saying that if you've had an encounter with Jesus, it really, really ought to make a difference how you love your wife. Like, it really ought to make a difference how you love your husband. Like, if you have a genuine faith, it really should make a difference how you you raise your children and love your children how you interact with neighbors, co-workers, and even your in-laws. It ought to make a difference when you're making decisions in your life. Your faith ought to make a difference when it comes to dealing with, with stress. It ought to make a difference in your life when dealing with disappointments, James is challenging us that what we, what we learn to put it in practice, but what happens lots of times across our country, even here in the city of Sarnia, churches will be filled, people will hear, and they'll walk out through those doors and leave everything that they've learned at the door, and they'll go about their entire week and not pick up their faith until they come back through the doors again. And James is saying, actually, our faith is an everyday faith. It's not a faith that's just reserved for Sundays. It's a faith that ought to be lived out every day. Now, just before we look at the passage this morning, there is this lingering question in Christianity, and that question is, does faith really make a difference in our daily lives? Like, when the rubber meets the road, what happens? Can I actually have a faith that really makes no difference in my life? on how I live. Are changes in my life inevitable, or are they optional?" Can I, can I say I have faith and go on my merry old way and interact with people and, and live like, like nothing has actually ever happened? Is it possible to have an encounter with Jesus Christ, believe all that he was able to accomplish on the cross, dying on the cross for our sins, raising from the dead, sitting on the right hand of the Father, interceding for us? Can we believe all that and it not affect us, it not change us? That's the question that James is asking, and that question has been asked for generations, and first century. So, if you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, or some kind of electronic device that you can follow along with, would you turn to the book of James? We're going to pick it up in James chapter 2 this morning. James chapter 2. And we're going to pick it up actually in verse 14. James 2, verse 14. We don't often do this, but this morning I'm going to ask you would you stand as we read God's word uh, this morning? James chapter 2. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Uh, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Oh, but someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good. That's great. Well, even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Well, In the same way was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Let's pray. Father, in these next few moments, I pray that you would help us, Lord to do some examination of our own life to check to see if our faith is authentic, is it genuine, is it making a difference in our life. So, God, open our eyes to your truth this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The passage that we have just read here this morning is an extremely controversial passage. In fact, there have been people who have said that book of James shouldn't even be included in the Bible. Martin Luther, the great Protestant Reformation, actually said that. He would have been very happy to have this book ripped right out of uh, the Scriptures. It's very controversial, this particular passage. A lot of discussion has taken place. Arguments, fights have broken out on this passage of Scripture, James chapter 2 here. Uh, When I read these verses... And I, and I hear the, you know, him talking about works and deeds, honestly, my legalistic tendencies begin to tingle. Because I have, it's just the way I'm built, I am bent towards rules. I've been like that since a little, little kid growing up. I loved rules because I, I knew exactly where the boundaries were. I knew what was right and what was wrong. I'd be just like, okay, mom and dad, just explain them carefully to me, and I'll, and I'll have no problem obeying the rules. Now, I had lots of friends who did not have that same philosophy. I mean, they tried every way that could bend the rules, get around the rules, or if you break the rules, not to get caught. But that just wasn't my makeup. I I just wanted to know, and when I read James, James okay, you gotta do some deeds here. I'm like, okay, 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 James, give me the list. Give me the list, I wanna know the list. Do I have to get up at the crack of dawn and do something? I'll do it, I'll do it, just tell me what you want. And so when I read through James, I'm like, at first glance, the first time reading through it, it seems that James has a suggestion that to have faith for salvation, he said, it's faith plus works. That's what it seems to say when you first read through this particular passage, And you begin to ask yourself, can James actually be arguing for that point of position? Because if he was, would it not nullify what the cross of Christ did? I mean, if if James was arguing that you have to have faith plus works, it seems that it would be against everything else that the Scriptures teaches. Certainly what Paul uh, writes about in the book of Romans, so surely James can't be arguing that you have to add works to faith, because it seems as though that would belittle the cross of Christ and all that he sacrificed for us. So if he's not arguing that you have to put works with faith, and James, what, what are you trying to say? Like what, what's the point you're trying to make here? James is saying that when faith is part of your life, when you recognize and receive the gift of Jesus Christ and what he offers. James is saying genuine, authentic, biblical faith is characterized by works. Now faith and works is mentioned a lot uh, in this book. And so just so we're all on the same page, let's give a definition. What is faith? A faith trusts God and obeys God. That's what faith is. Faith trusts God and obeys God. So if there is no trust and if there is no obedience, then I think James is saying there's no faith. It's, it's, it's dead. So what is works? Works means a life of loving God and loving others. Works is, means a life of loving God and loving others in verse 14 that we just read here it really is the thesis the james book here this passage really is really what the whole book of james is all about because he poses a question what good is it for anyone to say that i believe in god but there are no changes i mean can that faith actually save him that's what james is saying and that's why this is so controversial now, we can look at verses like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It says, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. Um, it is a gift of God, not of works. Why? So no one can boast. So we have here, okay, it, it's by grace alone, not by works. Galatians two sixteen says, know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have been put who have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that man that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. So James is not trying to challenge the rest of the Bible. What he is saying though is we are saved by faith alone but not by faith that is alone. Big difference there. Let me say that one more time. We are saved by faith alone but not by faith that is alone. Remember, God is not looking for for perfection, but progress. I mean, none of us love God perfectly. None of us love people perfectly. So he's not talking about perfection, but he is talking about progress. The way you love God and, and the way you love people ought to be a little bit different than it was a year ago. It ought to be a little bit different than it was five years ago. Like progress is being made. And a faith that has no works, James is just saying it right out there, it's useless. It's actually a dead faith. It is not a saving faith. That's what James says. Now look at the illustration that he gives here in verse 15. He says, let's just suppose somebody comes into your congregation, and, and he's in need. And a brother and a sister he sees this great need and doesn't do anything about it. In this particular illustration, it's a person that comes in, he's starving. He has nothing, like nothing. And and of course, in this day and age, there's no middle class. It's like the poor and there's the wealthy. And so James is saying, what if if a poor brother or sister comes and he has nothing? He's naked, he has no clothes, he has no food. James is not saying, oh, he doesn't have brand name clothes. It's not like his clothes are from Walmart. He's saying, no, he is nothing. And James says, if somebody comes into your congregation like that, and you just pat him on the back and say, well, I hope you find some, and you don't do anything, and James is saying, hmm, that's a dead faith. That is not a saving faith it's a dead faith. Now remember, these are tumultuous times. Remember, persecution is an all-time high when this book is being written. And James just says, when you see a brother or a sister, don't just sit around and do nothing. Like, do something. Put it into action what you actually believe. And what is amazing, when, that, when things go into action, I love this. There's two things that are going on here. When, when someone who has the ability to help somebody who is less resourced in this particular situation, who's poor and needy without clothes, what happens when that need is met, that poor brother, that poor sister looks to God and goes, man, God provided for me, and lifts his voice up in praise. And then for the wealthy person, what is happening here is they can lift their voice up and praise and go, man, God was able to use me to bless as someone else's life. Two things are going on in that particular story. So our love for God translates into loving people. You fall deeper in love with Christ and it'll change your love towards people. How many people here have people in their lives that honestly you just don't like? You can be honest. Like I can put both hands up right? I mean, there are, there's just some people that it's very, very hard to love. And what I'm beginning to learn, the more I fall deeper in love with Christ, it really does begin to change how I love my love towards other people. It does. There's just something that happens in that. Uh, So James is saying, what good is we do nothing? But isn't that sometimes what we do? We can't be guilty of that. You know, we see somebody in need, We say, hey, don't worry, pat him on the back, I'm praying for you, and kick him right at the door, be on your way. And then oftentimes we don't even pray. If your faith has no signs of life change, this is serious business, James is saying, if your life has no signs of life change, then it is either dying or it is dead, Now, people all across this great country of ours, people will fill the churches this week. They'll say they believe in Jesus, they believe in God, but there's no difference in their life. And James says, what good is that? Like, what good is that? James emphasized, it's it's dead. I'll tell you what it is, it's a dead faith. Then James goes on there in verse 18 and 19, somebody is gonna come up to you and they're going to say, well, listen, I have faith, and I have, but I don't have work. I mean, I, those are two separate identities, like uh, entities. Uh, they're separate things. I mean, I have my faith life, and it doesn't interact with my work life, my deeds. They're, they're completely separated. And James is saying, somebody's going to say that to you. Hey, you have faith. I have works. I mean. And James is saying, hey, I want to see your faith. Like, what does it look like? What does your faith cause you to do that's different? James makes this very, very strong point. He says, you believe in God. Oh, good for you. That's great. But he follows up by saying, yeah, but you know what? The demons believe that too. In fact, (laughs) the devil and demons can pass every doctrinal test that we give them. They know it inside out. And James is saying, that's great, that's great, but let me remind you, the enemies of God do that. Believe in God. James is saying, what good is it if your words do not match match your actions? He's saying your faith is absolutely useless if it doesn't cause you to live, live differently. It doesn't cause you to love God and love people. Works is an evidence of faith. And James is just simply saying, you show me your faith by the way you are loving God and loving people. James says, even the demons believe that. But what good is it? James' thesis really in this book is that we are saved through faith, but faith is not alone. Faith is never alone. Then James says, you want some evidence? You want some, me to back that up? James goes right to the Old Testament and he brings up a couple of illustrations. You can find the story of Abraham and Rahab. Uh, Abraham is in Genesis 15 through 22, the story that he's talking about. And then, of course, in Joshua chapter 2. Uh, James is saying, Abraham. And of course, the people would immediately um, identify with Abraham. And he, would, he said, Remember Abraham, he was 75 years of age desperately wanting a child. He and Sarah had no children, and this is the day and age to have a son meant everything, but they had no children at all. And At 75 years of age, God made a promise to Abraham, and you can just imagine the weight, 80, 85, 90, 95, the promise that God had made never came true. Like, Lord, I'm 95 years old, and then when he turns 100, of course, the promised child, the child, the son that God had always promised. And then I think Isaiah was, a, Isaac was probably about eight years old when God asked Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son to me. you imagine? The thing that I promised you, I want you to give it up. And that's why I said this is where faith, the definition of faith, trusting God and obeying him. And so though Abraham didn't understand it at all, he trusted God, he headed to the mount, he got ready to sacrifice it because he was going to be obedient, he just knew somehow God's going to do something that I don't even understand. But I'm going to trust him and I'm going to obey him. And then it says that Abraham's faith faith, it says right in scripture, was made complete by the way he lived, by his actions. Not by what he said, but by his actions. Our faith is made complete by the way that we live. Faith is not made complete by what we talk about, but by our actions, by the way we live. Faith is made real when it changes the way we live. How we love our wives and treat our husbands and raise our children and, and respect our girlfriend or our boyfriend. How we work at the office. Abraham's faith and actions were made complete. Made complete by the way he lived. Now, of course, we, we, we read a story like Abraham and go, okay, that makes sense, using him as an illustration. But what just blows us out of the water is that James is now going to use an illustration of a prostitute. Of all things. Like uh, A prostitute. James is going to use her as an illustration. Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho. No little girl ever dreams of growing up to be a prostitute. Something deplorable has happened in her life that has caused her to live this lifestyle. This is a day and age when when women were considered second-rate citizens, second class. And so you can imagine as a prostitute, she has been used and abused like a commodity. And so she's living in Jericho, this fortified city, and Israel is going to take over the city. But how can you penetrate a city where the walls are so thick? There's no way. It's impossible. Of course, then Joshua sends in some spies, a spy of the land, and word has gotten out Someone has let the information out of the bag, and there's some spies in the city, and they're trying to track them down. They're trying to find them. And Rahab, I don't know if she got a word from God or what, but she hides the spies. Like She seems to go against her, her own people because she's going to hide the spies that Joshua has sent in, God's people. And, of course, she lets them out. The city falls to its knees, like it crumbles. And it's an incredible story what happens there. And and Rahab lives. She, She actually trusted the God of Israel and obeyed what was asked of her. And this is what's remarkable. A prostitute is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So thankful that God uses anybody. What a great example. I'm glad that story is there to remind us God uses Anybody. And James is leading us to a place where we need to answer the question, where we need to look inwardly and answer this question. He's asking us to examine ourselves and see, do we have a genuine faith, or is it a manufactured faith? That's what James is asking us. Is your faith authentic? Now, I know that seems like a really churchy question. Ah, uh, yeah, okay, Don, I've heard that before. Is it authentic? Is it real? Let me tell you, that question is so important. I'll tell you why it's so important. Because what hangs in the balance is heaven or hell. That's what hangs in the balance. And that's why James is serious about this. Like, do you have something that is real or is it fake? Is it genuine? Now, I know that word hell is not a popular word in our culture. But I tell you, the Bible talks about it a lot. In fact, Jesus talks more about hell than he does heaven. Uh, C.S. Lewis, a prolific writer, probably many of us have read some of his things. I love what he says. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. He says, if there was any way that I could remove that doctrine of hell, I would do it. And in many ways, wouldn't we agree with him? I mean, as Christians, I mean, none of us like the idea of hell. And those of us who believe in hell aren't sadistic. You just want to see people suffer. In fact, lots of people, most of the people that I know who have friends and family who, are, who do not know Christ are heartbroken that this is where some of their family or friends may spend eternity. Hell is a difficult reality. I, I agree with that but it is something that the Bible actually teaches. And you can't fully understand God and His Word unless we grapple with it. And Jesus actually talks about it more than heaven. You know, sometimes we think the Old Testament is the old grumpy God, and the New Testament is the kind, compassionate Jesus, the newer, the better version of God. I mean, some people will even try to avoid speaking on the subject of hell. You know, that was the Old Testament God back when he was a junior higher, when he was kind of cranky. But the New Testament, that's the more mature Jesus, the meek and mild Jesus, the one that's all about love and compassion. The problem with this view is that when you read through the Gospels, you just find over and over and over that Jesus keeps talking about it. And if you actually were to count all the verses, you would find there are more verses that Jesus talks about hell than than heaven. Eternity with Jesus, or an eternity without Jesus, that is what is at stake right here. And so that's why James just wants you to double-check, is this real? Is it authentic? Is it genuine? And is there any evidence to back it up? In Matthew chapter 25, it's kind of a similar story, only it's Jesus that's actually talking. He kind of uses the same illustration that James uses. Let me just read it to you, James chapter 25. You don't have to turn there. It says, the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you, are who, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. That's who hell was actually prepared for. It wasn't really prepared for people. It was originally prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick in prison, and you did not look out after me. They also will answer, Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? Like, when did that happen? Jesus said, well, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Jesus and James use the same factors here in describing authentic faith. What good is it, James is saying, what good is it Jesus is making? Is that if there's no evidence, if, if there's nothing being done, if your life is not different. In fact, James makes it very, he just puts it right on the table. That kind of faith is absolutely useless. James, I, Jesus, I need a food, and, and I need a clothing, and, and, and you did nothing for me. What kind of faith is that? i grew up as many you know in a christian home my parents gently kept pushing me towards the things of christ that was my environment but i also have friends who grew up in the same kind of environment as i did grew up in a christian home parents kept trying to push them towards the things of god went to church went to youth group memorized more verses than i did could tick off the boxes of all the things i did could tell you how to get to heaven but somewhere along the line, it never became real. A lot of head knowledge, a lot of intellectual assent, but not real. That's why I even challenge teens, if you're here today, there's gotta be a point when it no longer becomes your mom and dad's faith. It has to become your own. And maybe you are here this morning and you can tick off everything in the box that looks like a Christian, but it isn't authentic. You're just going through the motions. You've never been wrecked by the Spirit of God in your life. Maybe you're here this morning and you just need to say, you know what, I'm tired of faking it. I've grown weary of it. james is saying when we experience true faith it is a life-changing reality it is not an an emotional experience it's a life-changing reality when you get to the point where you just throw your hands up in the air and say god i'm all yours you will not be the same anymore God will begin to change you. And it doesn't happen overnight, I realize that. It is a process. But God will begin to change you. And as Christians, we know that. It is a process. I mean, God continues to change us. We mess up, and we keep on going. The Bible talks about that kind of faith. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, If therefore anyone is found in christ the new creation has come the old is gone and the new has come the old is gone the new has come i meet mean, a lot of people who the old just keeps hanging around they keep moving down the road and dragging the old with them genuine faith leaves the past And steps into the future to follow Christ. There will be a lot of people on this Sunday morning in our city and our country who will be sitting in churches uh, and chairs and pews, and their faith is not real. It just isn't, it's dead. And I just want to ask you this morning. Like really, what kind of faith do you have? Do you have the faith, kind of just kind of ch- checks all the boxes and it all looks good outwardly, but nothing has changed inwardly? Is your is your faith genuine this morning? Is it real? No greater time than right now. In these moments, just just to reflect is it real what i have you know maybe you're here this morning you're like i don't i don't know i want to encourage you in the next day today tomorrow ask somebody that you know has a vibrant faith and go, and go ask them do you see anything different in me are there any any fruits in my life that actually would say that i'm different You know, you can have a genuine faith this morning. That's what I love about it. You. you actually can. By simply praying to God, Christ, ask Him to forgive you of your sins, invite Him in, surrender your life to Him, and let Him begin to change you from the inside out that actually can happen this morning and God can change a life, a twinkle of an eye the snap of a finger a destiny that no longer hangs in the balance heaven or hell no because when your faith is genuine it doesn't hang in the balance you know your destiny so in these quiet moments I'm just praying that God will do the work And God would speak into our lives. Saying that I'm a Christian and that I love God, but that it doesn't cause me to live differently or love people differently, then really, we probably should stop saying I'm a Christian. And James is inviting us to enter into a life that is complete, fulfilling, rich, abundant, abundant. He's not inviting us to an empty life. And until we fully, fully give our lives to Christ, I don't think we can fully understand the delight that can be found in Him. And when we delight in Him, it does change our behavior. You know, husbands, when you delight in your wife, it creates some discipline in your life, behavior. When you delight in your husband, it causes, it drives you to have some discipline in your life, in your behavior. And that's true in our relationship with God. When we delight in him, it causes us to be different than we once were. maybe you have come here this morning and honestly you're just kind of banged up bruised up, beat up from serving the Lord and you feel like you just don't have any more fuel in you well that just may be a simple season of desert weariness doesn't mean that you're not saved you're tired so James is just simply asking us the question Are you a genuine believer in Jesus? Are you a a follower or a fan? Is there a mustard seed in you of loving God and loving people? Is there an internal transformation, not an intellectual ascent? In just a moment, we are going to celebrate together the Lord's Supper we refer to it as communion no better time than right now to do some self-examination and the quietness of this moment to begin to ask yourself where am I, where do I stand in my relationship with God and with that let's just pray together Father in the quietness of this moment James is dealing with some serious issues and for some Lord I I feel that what hangs in the balance is heaven eternity with you or hell eternally separated from you so God what we're dealing with this morning is vital And Father, I pray for those whose faith feels so weak. Remind them that a mustard seed of faith can move mountains. Don't allow them to feel weighted down this morning. But God, I do pray for those who are here this morning that have have learned the Christian lingo, the Christian language, have learned Christian behavior, have learned how to polish themselves up, Learn Christian posture, but do not know you, God, would you lovingly reveal them to them that they have a need, a need for salvation, a need for a genuine, authentic faith? I pray. Amen. Here at our church, we practice what we call open communion. And what I mean by that is that Jesus Christ, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, we invite you to participate. But if you find yourself here this morning and you don't know Jesus, we would ask that you would just simply let the the tray pass by you. No one would judge you. In fact, they'll respect you for just being honest as we've gathered here this morning. But for the the genuine believer in Christ, what we're about to do is extremely meaningful because we just slow things down and simply remember what Jesus has done for us on the cross, the forgiveness of our sins. And this is a reminder. This is a reminder that there is no sin greater than the cross. And we celebrate that this morning.